Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning has gone completely virtual. We've taken both our Level 1 and Level 2 courses and loaded them onto an online platform so that you can digest the power of this amazing operating system from the comfort of your home. We combine this recorded video experience with live Zoom labs to bring all the principles and practices of reconditioning to life through applied case study. In turn, you walk away with how to best use this language of common practice to bring the worlds of therapy and performance together in one powerful approach that creates lasting change in your client's performance. This fall, ReconditioningHQ.com is launching a complete experience package that brings all of the video teachings together with a powerful mentorship program and a weekly community touchpoint so you can grow as the reconditioning revolution grows. We are truly excited about the possibilities. We believe that success in any venture begins with the right mindset. We know that the statistics for burnout in human performance are significant and that many of our colleagues face questions every day about personal fulfillment and living their best life. This is why we've started a landmark program for human performance professionals called Empower You. This program is all about crafting your best life, living purposefully and enjoying the fruits of your impassioned labor. We start our next quarter in September and we'd love to have you along for the ride. For more information about reconditioning courses or our amazing Empower You program, head over to ReconditioningHQ.com and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 Canadian off the program of your choice. Understatement alert, for sports performance coaches and proactive healthcare professionals, the last six months have been very challenging. We are now seeing the permanent changes in our profession, how our services are delivered, are affected, and we must adapt. Providing safe and effective health and fitness coaching has never been more needed, yet never been more uncertain. Matrix Fitness Canada wants to help you in your journey. Matrix Fitness is a premier brand of fitness equipment designed for organizations, professionals, and exercisers alike. If you are refreshing your facility, they can help. If you are in need of setting up clients with their home gym space, they can help. The Matrix Fitness Canada Ambassador Program is designed to help you expand the reach of your services. This program supports your expertise in supporting home gym design so your clients can have what they need to continue to subscribe to your services. The best part? You can insert yourself into the economic equation as a Matrix Fitness Canada Ambassador. For more information on requirements to qualify and the details around their services, please connect with Nikki.Turner at jhtcanada.com. Welcome to our newest Leave Your Mark sponsor, Rep Performance. Rep Performance is a web application founded by NHLers Nick Foligno and his strength and conditioning coach, Callan McGibbon. Understanding the importance of the developmental stages and their impact on long-term athlete development, they launched an online performance for coaches, trainers, or teachers that would instill a foundation of fitness, share their story, and help them ensure no athlete slips through the cracks and they are equipped to succeed in sport and life. Visit them at repperformanceapp.com. 
Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the honor of speaking with Sam Gibbs. Sam is an osteopathic manual practitioner, certified athletic therapist and registered massage therapist. He has a master's in functional medicine and human nutrition and a postgraduate certificate in clinical endocrinology and a master's in applied neuroscience from King's College London and the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience. He is a partner and director of operations at P3 Health in Toronto, a leading integrative health center for focused on treatment of chronic disease and dysfunction. He's been head therapist and integrated support team leader with the Canadian Men's National Basketball Program for over 24 years. He maintains similar leadership positions with other national sports federations and frequently consults with individual professional athletes and teams. He's been selected to multiple national medical teams for major international competitions and leadership roles. Sam is a founding member of the Tomahawk Science, a leading full-service sports science consultancy based out of Chicago, Illinois, that provides performance consultation and medical management for professional athletes of various sports. He's also a father of three. I've known Sam for a number of years now and always admired his lifelong dedication to self-improvement and learning, and I'm delighted to have him on the show. Welcome, Sam. Thank you very much, Scott. <laughs> As I said before we get on, it's a really it was really delightful to see you again. Uh, I always enjoy seeing your smile and uh, your your energy and things. And uh, it sounds like life is is going well. So good to see that. Welcome. Likewise. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry you had to read that that big introduction. It's, it's, <laughs> you can just you can just call me Sam. <laughs> well, I'm I'm overwhelmed by education. I don't think uh, I don't think I can match you in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> <laughs> this, that resume, but anyway, um, where where did where did you start life? You were you're a Toronto guy through and through, or did you go, grow up somewhere else? I am I am a Toronto boy. I uh, I did grow up. I mean, I, I grew up in Toronto. My, my family uh, was we were back and forth to New York with uh, with cousins and relatives um, when we were growing up. My father was we weren't sure if we. We're going to live here or there. So we did spend a lot of time down in, in Long Island, um, Hempstead, if there's anybody out there in Long Island. But it was, it was mainly uh, uh, sort of extended visits. Uh, that's what those turn, they turned into. But yeah, everybody is here. Uh, my life is here. And how many siblings do you have? I have two sisters, two older sisters and the youngest of three, well, four years apart. Okay. Um, and yeah, sisters are... Sisters are great. I, I wouldn't have changed that for the world. Uh, they, they they teach uh, a guy how to be a man. I think mm. so. It was uh, uh, it was great having having. And I still do. I mean, it's not like they're gone. It's a uh, mm-hmm. you still learn from them. So it's a great experience. What did your What did your parents instill in you as you were growing up? What What was the influence there? Were they um, tough on you? Were they people who kind of let you flourish and grow what was uh, what was growing up like for you uh, with your parents interesting but they uh really when i reflect my my mother was the sort of um uh, i would say the the spiritual and uh sort of uh maybe even moral rudder not that my father was moral but just she was she was so grounded uh, and Bill is very grounded in her um, in her position, uh, living out loud for 
for a set of morals and beliefs. And my father was as well. My father passed away maybe around six or seven years ago, but uh, he was a lot quieter. Um, he, he was kind of a cross between like James Earl Jones and Bill Cosby, where he was like a, a, a big guy who um, was very, very quiet with this sort of big presence uh, and a great sense of humor, um, but people didn't get him because uh, he would never, he never really opened up. Uh, he would just be very quiet and just say little things like little inside jokes or little, little, little side marks that would have people rolling. Uh, but if you'd be like that guy who like, you know, spitball in the ear in class and then sit back very quietly. And so everybody is, everybody else is disrupted and he'd be just serious. So that was the type of guy he was. And my, my mom was kind of a, the the rudder that kind of kept things everything kept everything going but um my father eventually passed away from this from the uh, uh, result of a stroke um, mm. that he he had been, had been maintained for a couple of years but uh the difference is my mom gave me that um the the almost permission or the uh the spurring on to stay grounded and stay focused and and stay uh, true to the to the tenets that you're building your existence on, we'll say, to make a long story short, mm-hmm. uh, and to and to live that very very clearly. Mm-hmm. And my dad, he he kind of his the takeaway from my father was when you're talking to someone who has nothing to say, let them talk because they're eventually going to talk themselves out, and you can just leave the conversation. <laughs> and so I mean, and like he, he was like, you know. There's no cure for stupid. Like, this is all stuff that he would be, he'd be saying. Like, there are just things that, that exist. And so people are going to always, always bring out reasons why you can't be the way you are. They're going to say that you can't do things. But just, just keep on, just keep your head down. Keep your eyes up. And, you know, look for any hits from the side. But just continue on your, on your, on your quest and just do what you do. And so that, that was kind of, I mean, if I distilled what, what they what they gave, that would be, that would be certainly it. And then, I mean, morally and religiously, I mean, those are, those are things that are very close to me. Uh, and then I still, uh, I, I hold on to and I, I, my family as well. And there's like bedrock that I just, that have molded my own personal worldview. And I would say that they were the introduction to those things, but they certainly by no means forced me down any path. Um, so those things are also uh, they're very uh, I attribute to them as well. So it's uh, it, it was it was very good. It was very good to have them as parents. It still is. Where do you where do you draw your? Because I've always found in the conversations I've had with you, you have a very compassionate heart, and that's there's a side to you that is. I think that's one of your greatest strengths that I've um, experienced, and just you know, the conversations that we've had and watching you work and think, does that come from inside you or is that something you've learned or, or, or saw or experienced or, or is it just you? Uh, well, I mean, I guess I'm involved in some way, (laughs) (laughs) right. Um, But I I think that, I I think that the important thing, whenever you're talking about, uh, something like compassion, um, if you're attributing that to me, I would say the question that I'm asking myself, if there's some, some instance for compassion to be expressed, uh, it would be born out of the question, what is right? Mm-hmm. And that's, it, it's a deeper question than, than I think people even give it credit for because first you have to decide, is there, is there right and wrong? And I say yes. Um, and so if you're doing something that is right uh, and you have a choice to make, uh, 
you know, are you, is it the right thing to do? And what is the best thing to do? What is the, the best right thing to do? Those are all things that, those are the questions that I'm kind of asking myself all the time. And even from a learning perspective, I ask those questions. What's, what's the right thing to do? And what would actually make the most sense for the people I'm trying to serve? And then you get, they're not easy answers, but you get answers. And then you have to decide on if you're outfit to do it. Um, and that I think is a big conversation in itself. Mm-hmm, for sure. I want to kind of circle back into that from, as we kind of unpack your, your career a little bit. So, so I'm assuming you played lots of sports as a kid and you, you know, were, was sports more of a, an influence or academics more of an influence when you're in your teenage years or what's, what are you, what are you, um, kind of really hanging on when you're a kid? Middle middle age kid, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I uh, sports was a big deal. Um, I came from a a pretty sort of athletic family, a sports minded family. I mean, my uh, nobody in Canada really cares. My uncle and and cousin were big in cricket, and so Mm -hmm. uh, they were kind of the Jordan and Bird of cricket uh, back in the day, I guess. And, uh, and that was a big part of our upbringing, uh, in that we were very involved with, uh, the sort of, um, uh, the, the tenants, the grounds of the sport. Um, so that, uh, from that sort of put the, set the tone for the things that, that we valued, um, uh, not just from a fitness perspective, but from a competition, competition perspective, mm-hmm. uh, winning was a thing and we would, you know, we, we understood that you could lose and you could win and, and you have to try and get better all the time. And so all these things were, were part of it. So that would be sort of the, the underpinning of sport. I, I never, I didn't play anything professionally, but I, uh, I secretly regret not trying certain things because I found that I could do them and I never, uh, I understood why I could do things and I never mm-hmm. sort of explored that more. Um, mm-hmm. so I guess that, that, um, understanding and uh the that sort of academic underpinning maybe framed my academic direction um i uh thought i would i i I was good at science and i was i wasn't a great student but i was good at science in terms of what science is and i knew i wanted to do something scientific Um, but i also loved art i went to an art school Mm. and um, it was something that i uh, I held very closely and it was something that was a big part of what I did. We were, we were big in music and visual art, like our family. So there was this blending of art and science and mm. I, I, I didn't know how it would play out, but I knew that, that they would sort of be present in everything that I did. And interestingly enough, when I was in high school, uh, I thought maybe I could be a, uh, uh, so an artist and then I got into the and then when I started the school I was in I knew that I would starve if I was an artist because there were a lot of better artists than me <laughs> so I better I better like my dad always said stick my education so I, uh, I, I I thought okay well maybe I could be an architect or engineer they're kind of artistic and now I'm in like maybe the, the ninth grade and uh, I got a job in an architectural firm because I, I always kind of went all out I got a job in an architectural firm making blueprints um, ruining subdivisions as I printed them. <laughs> and uh, it was interesting because I found that I didn't really like working with static buildings as much as I, I do love design, but I, I, I wanted to do more. And I thought maybe I could be an engineer because they 
could, they have more flexibility. And I thought maybe a biomechanical engineer. I thought that I thought I made that up, but looking into it, uh, it was a real profession. And heart lung machines and dialysis machines weren't my thing. I, I like the human body more, and so. This, this natural journey kind of led me actually the first clinic. This is now grade uh, 10 or 11, 11. I got a job in an athletic therapy clinic with like Richard Obermeyer and Tony Grande. Uh, and uh, that sort of sealed my, my interest. And I loved the idea of working with, with uh, people who had a drive to get better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the thing that I thought I'd be in for the rest of my life. And, uh, and so this now, you know, how old are you in grade 11? It was at that time I was like, this is what I want to do. And, you know, what did I have to do to kind of get myself into that position? And I didn't want to waste time. I had a lot of friends who were going away doing like, arts and science or finding themselves in Europe, but I wasn't interested in that. And so I uh, saw, I found Sheridan because uh, through these guys and um, I applied and I didn't get in the first year I applied. Because mm-hmm. I was really young. I was only uh, 18. And they said, well, everybody right now is, is, uh, they finished school and they've got a master's and they're sort of going on that route. So if you want to end, you're the top 27 or whatever, but not the top 25. And, and so you're not in. I said, well, what do I got to do? Mm-hmm. And, uh, they said, well, you can go and get a bunch of experience or you can go and get a, finish your degree or get a degree because you're 18 and, uh, uh, or 17 and come on back to us. So I said, well, screw that. I want to do this. I want to, I want to do this for real. So I went to, uh, uh, York University uh, to the track, actually. And uh, I started, uh, I approached the track team because they were close to my, close to me. And um, I said, look, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. I volunteer in an, ath- in an athletic therapy clinic. Anything I don't know how to do, I can take there and we can work together. What do you say? And I thought they'd say, get out of here, kid. Go, go start school and tell. But they said, yeah, sure. And I was like, really? And they, yeah. So that started, I mean, a very interesting chapter in life. I mean, I, the coaches I was working with, working with Richard Rock and Pops Keen and Charlie Francis, some of the best coaches in the world. And they, they trusted a 17-year-old kid who wasn't even in school uh, just to, uh, to treating athletes uh, that, I mean, was unbelievable. And I mean, went to Olympic trials and working with, like, Robert Esme, it's 4 by 100 track team, Mark Smith and all these guys. I mean, I, I, I they made it into the Olympics, so I didn't ruin their careers. But but it was an <laughs> amazing experience for a kid that I was. And then I got into school, so it was like this. I understood looking back. There's still this artistry that uh, I draw from, even today in therapy. And I, I'm able to ask. I think from that underpinning that love for art, able to ask abstract questions, not take my tel- myself too seriously and continue to deconstruct and reconstruct. And I think that those are all artistic mm-hmm. qualities rather than scientific qualities. And um, from the academia side, it is the, I'm, I like the process of learning. And sometimes that's not a blessing. It can be a curse because you're interested in many things. But what I've decided is that I know what I want to do and I want to dissect it from many directions and many, many angles and be the ultimate generalist. Mm. Uh, I'm not interested in specialization per se. I'm interested in learning concepts, Mm. not techniques and putting things together so that they make sense for uh, in the real world. So that's, that's kind of, that's kind of how that, where that comes from. Is that, that's, 
you discovered that about yourself in the more recent past, or did you discover that when you were at Sheridan that you were kind I, of I, rest, restless in your education in some sense? Yeah, I, I understood that at Sheridan. Uh, I mean, Joe Rotella, uh, Ann Hartley, these are all guys who were were mentors of mine then. And actually thinking back, I mean, Joe, and you know, Joe, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, he said to me, yeah, Sam, what do you want to do when you're done? And he was, he was like not out of school too long either. Like when he was there, he was like a young guy. And so he was like, what do you want to do when you're done? And I said, I don't know. I think I want to go to the Olympics. And he goes, well, you're going to get to do that. So what do you want to do next? Mm-hmm. And when he asked me that question, I don't even know if he, he remembers asking me that, but <laughs> that question kind of floored me because I never thought beyond the goal. I never thought beyond that. Mm-hmm. And that's, that I think is a, is a real heinous crime for, for most people and even most athletes. I want to make the Olympics. I want to make, you know, the, I want to make the major leagues. Well, now, now you, you're there. So now what mm-hmm. are you going to do? Mm-hmm. So I, I, from that day, I started asking that question of myself and I knew, I think it was very shortly after that, that I mapped out my path probably up until my almost my first masters that I, what I wanted to do. And I knew it was a, I knew it was a 10 or 11 year plan. And so I just started and that's what I did. And I just followed that entire plan. Uh, and then when I finished that plan, I started a new plan. And so now I'm in the, the middle of a new plan and I got probably another six or seven years left that I want to try and finish before I can roll over and, and either die or, <laughs> or, or, or move on. <laughs> so I, I, it's just been a, it's been a journey, but I, because I saw, it was a, it was a path, not a, not a, not a sort of stopgap. I, I could see where it was going and that mm. was, um, so it was never something that was burdensome. Hmm. When does, when does osteopathy, um, burn into you or start to burn into you, so to speak? And you, is that, that was, the influence of Joe and those guys? That, that yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I had, I had the, uh, the idea that, um, I quickly learned it was after probably my first year of uh, athletic therapy that I, I really couldn't help anybody. Uh, and I mean, <laughs> and it was, and it was, uh, I mean, you know, I, I love, I, I love athletic therapy, what it stands for in the philosophy and that's a whole other thing. But, um, the reality was when I, when I was going through, I, I, I think I grasped a lot of concepts very quickly and I was able to pull them apart. And when I did, I was left at, well, I can tell someone, uh, you know, how to live in a healthy way. And I could do something if I brought them back to a clinic and I had a, a week or two, but I didn't have anything I could do right there on the spot. I didn't have a way that I could change someone's life uh, and figure out some really tough problems. And that bothered me. So I knew that I needed tools that I could carry with me all the time, being my hands. And that was what I had to develop. And then Joe and Ann at the time were kind of in the middle of their, or just starting their osteopathic journey. And, and so that was something that, that I was like, well, Hey, this is, I gotta, I gotta look into this. And before I do it, I want to have some, I want to have some, uh, some bedrock set. And so it was, it was in my first year of athletic therapy that I decided I want to do osteopathy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, that's, that's kind of where that started. I'm really curious actually. Um, and I know this is going to be an interesting sort of call it rabbit hole to discuss, but, you know, there are some practitioners who kind of go into their professional practice and they they learn the skill sets, so to speak, and deliver the deliverables. And they continue to develop their skills and, and process. But in essence, it's kind of the same construct with 
a few few new bells and whistles as they go along, if you know what I mean. Whereas what I've noticed about you is that you kind of keep trying to unlayer the next layer and kind of go to the deeper space and find the next sort of frontier of that. And I'm interested in two parts of that. Is that is is that hard sometimes to be that curious and inquisitive and does it lead you down to a, through a rabbit hole sometimes um does it seem overwhelming at times when you when you kind of look at it from that perspective or is it just you know this uh, this constant feeling of curiosity and wanting to explore and so you really enjoy that and you've never made it never even thought of it that way yeah i've, I've never I, I could say it's con- there is constant curiosity and um, what I'm learning more and more is how to ask good questions, um, not to be swayed by uh, sort of anecdote and hearsay, whereas before there would have been there been a lot of that. And, and that can be overwhelming because people who aren't sort of grounded in, um, in, in being able to, to frame a question and ask a good question and, and, and understand the answer, because those are three different things. People who aren't swayed by that are sort of building their their premise and building their, uh, their, their framework on a series of assumptions mm-hmm. or a series of uh, sort of hearsay uh, or anecdote. And, mm-hmm. and those things can be very dangerous to, to, to frame, especially in the healthcare field. Mm-hmm. Those things can be dangerous to, 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 to frame your theories on mm-hmm. because sometimes they don't hold water. Mm-hmm. Some things are very, very sexy and things are very, very attractive because they're either very romantic and very complex and, you know, you, you couldn't possibly understand this. But when you deconstruct something and you whittle it down to the key components, often there are common threads that flow throughout. And so my, my interest is in neuroendocrine immune mechanisms. And, hmm. and although I have osteopathy or uh, different therapies as vehicles, the body doesn't care about osteopathy. It, it, it frankly doesn't even care what, a, what we call a bone or a joint. It doesn't know what a joint is. It has two interfaces that move, and it gives feedback, and that's it. But that would be too hard to frame a medical practice on if you were telling people to look for those sites. So we, we have names for them. Mm-hmm. But the reality is if we understand what a joint means for the body, if we're just talking about joints, then, then we'll really understand what it mean, what, what it's, how it's supposed to be used and, and what it can do for the body. Mm-hmm. So now it's... Um, I mean, that's just in the, in the musculoskeletal realm. When you start talking about uh, hormone and nervous and immune, that, that gets immense. And joints, believe it or not, have roles to play even in those things. And so that's the sort of curiosity, and that's the, the, the drive, where there isn't really any difference. Um, so I, I don't find it a very daunting task to, to dive in more. I, I'm just finding out more about what I already knew and I'm adding to that knowledge. And every so often, you have to be, I, I say, you have to be ready to let go of something that you held very dear. Mm-hmm. And so there was, there was, a, there, there was a, an author and a really incredible woman named Corey Ten Boom. And she, she had a really interesting sort of life. I mean, you can look, at, look it up. And she, she, had, um, uh, she had a role to play in uh, saving, sailing, saving uh members who were or saving the Holocaust, Holocaust survivors uh, mm-hmm. in, in Holland. And one of the things that she's famous for saying is, don't hold on to anything so tightly that it hurts when it's taken away from your hand. Because some mm-hmm. people hold on to ideas and tenets and things that are, that are actually completely false. And when, 
when a higher power or when you're when someone who's much more knowledge knowledgeable than you takes it away from you and you're fighting to hold on to this thing just mm-hmm. let it go and if it's right it'll either come back or it'll be given back to you in spades with more knowledge and more ability so be flexible with your learning and be flexible with your with your with your underpinnings because these things have a tendency of changing when 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 new things are uncovered and in my in, in my arena that's science but when new scientific realities are uncovered you start to get you know a, a better understanding of what it is you're doing well, is, do you have an, a, 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 a story about something like that that you held on to too much for a while and re, re, recognized that at some point or or not um well, I think I think the kind of journey that I had into functional medicine. I mean, obviously, osteopathy is a big nut, and it's it's uh, takes a lot of years and a lot of experience, and people are sort of developing for years and years. But when I started asking the questions as to why patients weren't uh, getting better or what chronicity actually was, I found out that manipulative uh, modalities are not the answer. Uh, you know, as, as I said with um, this, I, this illustration with, with experience with Joe, uh, having a tool in my hands wasn't the thing. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's just time. And sometimes there were uh, chemical agents that needed, need, need to be considered, pharmaceutical and nutraceutical agents that need to be considered. Sometimes, sometimes medications and parasites need to be killed. Uh, and it's not just like with, with some natural you know, some of like wormwood or something like that. Uh, there are, there is room for something like Tylenol, like all these things mm-hmm. like confound what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not just chance that someone's given a medication uh, and they get better. It, it's about the timing of that thing. Mm-hmm. And so where we, where we are quick, we being these natural health practitioners might be quick to vilify a medical practice. No, it, that's not it. It's not something that's completely different. The body knows exactly what it needs. So those, those things are the things that I think I, I let go of. And that's not easy because you, you, you have peers and friends and people who are holding you accountable to the things that they learned and you learned. And they want you to drink the same Kool-Aid and sing the same songs. And you're there and you're like, no, no, that person just needs penicillin. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's the deal. Maybe we should figure out why this is existing. Hmm. Maybe we should just deal with inflammation in, in a very straightforward way rather than, you know, pumping, pumping a, a, a joint or, or working with uh, the cranium in some way. I mean, maybe there are better things that can happen. So those are things that, those are things that I think are important. Yeah. I, I find that interesting and is a nice segue into um, the work you've done with Canada basketball for so long. You've been so, such a part of that organization for so long as the, the lead therapist and lead of the IST. And, you know, when you have sort of these overreaching understandings and maybe understandings beyond the spectrum of sort of call it the average practitioner how have you negotiated or managed the differences of of viewpoint opinion of both the practitioners you work with and the athletes that come in because you on a national team you're getting athletes who are coming in from professional sport you've got athletes that are coming in from 
college sport, et cetera. And they probably have all kinds of different biases to the way they've, their care has been executed, et cetera. How has that, how has that been challenging and how has that also been um, rewarding in, in what you've, you've been doing over the last 24 years? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I would say probably the most important thing is go after the very best practitioners that you possibly can, can find on your team. Uh, people who might be better than you in, in, in as many fields as you can find. So I, what, I, what I sort of uh, hold dear is finding people like Mark Bubbs and Charlie Weingraf and, and J.B. Han who are excellent practitioners in, in their respective fields. And I can, they, they hold me accountable because of what I know. And uh, they are a part of my team. And I'll, I'll tell you, they've been a part of my team for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And any one of them can run to do what I do. And so I, there is a level of, first, you have to not take yourself too seriously, which is what I was saying before, where you, know, you, you can't die on some hill of, oh, we're going to do this. Because the athletes are also uh, excellent practitioners of their craft. And so now, mm-hmm. what are you, you going to tell them? Tell me, like an athlete said this, I actually heard an argument one time. He was arguing with, with a coach indirectly I mean, about a coach, somebody was telling them that they should, they should uh, do something that they knew with every fiber was wrong for them. And they said, I wouldn't have gotten to this point if, if I didn't, didn't, didn't know what they were asking me to do. Now you can say what you want. You can say that that athlete's uncoachable or, or what have you. That's a different conversation. What's interesting to me about that objection is that the, the athlete knows something about themselves and right or wrong, that has to be listened to. And so you, you have to ask yourself, what is it that we're going to take away from this objection? How are we going to reckon, how are we going to use this? If, we're, if for nothing else, can use the fire that they've got. And so it's that, I think that learning process that I've taken from the athlete and from a staff perspective, I'm able to go to them with an idea and say, this is what I'm thinking. Tell me either why I'm crazy or tell me a better way that we can get this done, right? And, and, and you, have to be, you have to be ready for that. I, I, it's complete open permission. And there's psychological safety to be able to say, you know, am I right or wrong? And if you think it's wrong, let's, let's go. Let's, let's figure out how we get a better plan here. And the... The beauty of our teams, we're able to do that very, very quickly, very quickly, and and hash things out very quickly. And so literally with a matter of minutes, I think we're able to to get a a firm direction on what we want to go, a a direction that we want to go, because we don't have time. We don't have time to go away and to to fester with anger and worry about, you know, some egotistical thing. It's like, no, that's a bad idea. Here's Here's why we should do, here's why this won't work. And we also have a um, a way of communicating that has just come by default, but by, uh, by looking in deeper, there is a, a system that was put forward by a very smart man, uh, by the name of Eduardo Bono, uh, De Bono, and it's called the six hats method. And essentially what it is, is, uh, he's, he, he's able to, um, guide the discussion and it's fascinating. I mean, I'm not going to go into too many details just to say that there are many angles and many components to solving a problem. So it's, it's problem-solving theory is what it is. Mm. And you have to look at a problem from many different directions, and everybody needs to be on the same page of each component of the problem. So, for example, you have to look at something positively. Uh, you have to look at why something will work. Everybody has to acknowledge 
that a plan could work. But then every, everybody also has to acknowledge why something might not work. They, all, they have to acknowledge what the negatives are. And so th- those, those just two examples alone, there are many different, there are about six different sort of, or five different angles that, that a problem will be, will be observed at. And everybody needs to kind of have that, put that hat on. Once that's done, then you get to a very, very well-rounded decision. And it comes out organically. And, and this is something that we, we kind of fell into. Um, and it wasn't until I was kind of led on to this um, that I kind of understood that this is, for us, this is, a, this is a great way that we can do that. Now, the other concession is that we're always connected. So Jay, Jay Meehan could, could send me a message right now and ask me a question. And it doesn't matter if it's about, like, you know, what, what, what color pants I should buy or, you know, what medication someone should be taking. The question is the question. And I, I, I do everything I, in, my, in my power to get that answer for him as quickly as possible. Because in my mind, it's stopping him from, from excelling and exceeding in some, in, in some fashion or form. Mm. Uh, another great book that I would recommend that you read is um, The Knowledge Illusion. Uh, and the, 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 up, the upshot of it is it doesn't matter if you, if you know the answer to a question if you have the, the answer in your pocket written on a piece of paper that you've got to consult, or if you know that your neighbor two doors down has the answer, the, the, the important thing is that you get the answer, that you are the, the messenger. So people will hold that, that exchange in high regard. And it also gives you freedom to, to understand that you do not have all the answers, hmm. but you might be the conduit to many answers. Hmm. So, we, we work that way, and, and that's why we work that way. So if, if Charlie asks me a question, I'm stumbling hand and foot because for all I know, he's standing in front of somebody saying, yeah, what was that, what was that thing that you were talking about, that, that answer? And Charlie says, oh, I, I know. I can tell you right now. And in a couple of clicks of his phone or, or you know, smoke signals or some way, he's going to get that answer, right? And if it's from <laughs> me or Jay. And that makes him look good, but also allows him to carry on some conversation. So Across the board, from top to bottom, that's kind of the process that we've, uh, we've instilled. And it's not easy, but that's, that's kind of how we've built ourselves. That's, uh, that's awesome. I love that. It's actually a perfect segue thing. You, I don't know if you've ever listened to my podcast, but I do this thing where I, I found a book called The Day You Were Born a number of years ago that mixes astrology with numerology. And the woman who wrote it, Linda Joyce, I brought her on the podcast. And I, I read everybody's purpose to them because she always starts out with a purpose and then a, a bit of a quote and then some insight. So you are born October 12th, correct? Yeah. So you are a Libra 3. And your purpose is to live your beliefs and risk yourself through leadership, knowing that remaining close to the truth is the only protection you have or need in an ever-changing world. I believe that all of us have the capacity for one adventure inside us, but great adventures 
but great adventure is facing responsibility day after day. William Gordon. The Libra three is not interested in daily routine. Their dreams are, are of faraway places and impossible feats. But the truth is the greatest challenge in living day to day, taking responsibility for the little things, seeing heroics and meeting everyday challenges. If Libra threes haven't had an opportunity to experience life firsthand and learn about themselves, they could be under the influence of someone with strong beliefs. It's time they take their power back and reconnect with faith and strong beliefs. It's time, sorry, it's time they take their power back and reconnect with faith and hope. If Libra threes are on the other end of the polarity, they are loners and rebels going against injustice or impossible odds is something they love. Charming, controlling, and willful, they make the rules. They need to stop to, stop trying to change the world and give themselves a new perspective. They need to accept their fate. Only then can they transform it. The Libra three either takes on too much responsibility or not enough. Balance is the key to happiness. Intimacy may be a problem because they are attracted to the adulation of the many. Born leaders, they have many they, they have their own unique way of approaching life, but authority issues may cause trouble. They need to take things one step at a time and value the small. Wow. Now I got a I got a lot to live up to now. <laughs> you, just, you just put on the pressure there. Thanks a lot, Scott. <laughs> wow. Gives you a little insight into into the depth of who you are. <laughs> so you're um, you know you're cruising along with this professional career, and where do you meet your partner in life? And and then how how does the world of fatherhood sort of become becometh to you. Our sponsor, Rep Performance, is a web application launched by co-founders Nick Foligno and Callan McGibbon. Their platform is designed for teachers and youth sport coaches with pre-designed testing templates and AI-driven workouts geared to individual needs. They aim to provide every coach the ability to develop fitness for life in the athletes of tomorrow, share their story, and help them ensure no athlete slips through the cracks, and they are equipped to succeed in sport and life. Visit them at Rep performanceapp.com today. Our sponsor, Matrix Fitness, produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. With equipment that focuses on building speed, power, and explosive performance in most efficient manner, Matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations worldwide. COVID has forced us all to rethink how we are offering our services. With that in mind, Matrix Fitness Canada has created an ambassador program designed to help you expand the reach of your services. This program supports your expertise in supporting home gym design so your clients can have what they need to continue to subscribe to your services. The best part? You can insert yourself into the economic equation as a Matrix Fitness Canada ambassador. For more information on requirements to qualify and the details around their services, please connect with Nikki.turner at jhtcanada.com. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I met my, my wife uh, growing up, I guess. Uh, we, uh, I didn't marry her when I, was, when I was five, but I met her when I was five. And <laughs> I, uh, uh, we had ups and downs and lefts and rights. But uh, I never liked her as a kid, <laughs> believe it or not. And wow. I'd probably, I'd probably get in trouble for saying that in some way. But I, uh, it just wasn't. I, I just wasn't interested in that that whole thing. And we were we were buddies. And so she was like a she was like a a, a friend, a, a friend of a friend, and friends of we had mutual friends. 
so, I mean, fast forward, we both uh, went on different tracks and uh, she went away uh, and did international business uh, uh, in Germany. Uh, and when she's back, for some reason, I called her up and said, hey, you want to wanna tell me about how Germany went? And it was completely out of the blue. And she's like, why are you calling me? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. You just want to talk. She's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, all right. I'll talk to you. So we went away and uh, had dinner just to to talk about it. And we ended up walking, I mean, in Toronto, uh, basically from the lakeshore all the way up to the, the highway at 401, which is a good, that's like a, a good hour drive, hour drive on a busy day. So we, we walked for like three, four hours and, uh, and she was, you know, we were just t- talking about, you know, life and directions and all these cool experiences. And I had finished athletic therapy and I was on, on different paths and stuff like that. And so that just started a, a relationship, I guess. And uh, eventually we were married, uh, spare all the, all the details and all the nonsense. And then, uh, I mean, like anything, life is life. It's, it's good. It's bad. It's left and right and made mistakes and grew and learned. Uh, it, marriage is a, a, a difficult, weird experience. And I think the later in life that you get married, the more difficult it is. Um, simply because you're, 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 the concrete's already set. And now if the toilet paper is running up instead of down and, and I mean, these are the things that, that break marriages up. I mean, it's like, it's not, you know, they're not little, they're not the big things. They're these stupid little things. And so that's, and, and that's, that's the reality, but, uh, you learn and, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully you come out better on the other end. And in the process, we had, uh, three fantastic kids and, um, those kids are, growing uh despite what i do to them they keep on growing uh they they stay on a track which is very cool and um uh i think that that experience alone you it was funny i my girls are they're twins um not identical they're like chalk and cheese they they look nothing they look like neighbors they don't even look like sisters but uh there is some there's some twinning in the family but it it's interesting because when they were born I mean, it's like a crime scene. I mean, you've had a kid, and you know, there's just like you know, people everywhere, and lights and sirens, and then all the noise stopped, and you get these two little blocks of of ham and in in cradles. And I I actually said, I think I said it out loud. It was just quiet. I slapped my knees, and I was like, "Wow, that was cool." And I went to get up and like leave <laughs> because the show was over. It was like, and I thought, "Oh shoot, <laughs> I can't." <laughs> I can't leave. <laughs> this, is, this is it. And I'm looking at these things and I'm like, Ugh. so, I mean, and that's, that's been, that was sort of the start of things. And, and so it was really, it's been really interesting. I, I, it's amazing to um, have people rely on you. Um, mm. And those can be old people or young people, but most people don't have that um, in, in, in a situation where they, they can't leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of people not just leave, but run away from, from problems. And I, and it's interesting if you uh, come back to the situation and you regroup and like, what are you going to do? Because you can't leave this kid hungry. You, mm-hmm. you got to feed it, right? Because <laughs> the problem isn't going to go away. So how are you going to rectify this? And the, and, and the kid just needs very basic things. It doesn't need the flashy car that you want. It doesn't need the big house. It needs love and it needs companionship and it needs to know that it is 
loved, right? It needs to know that it has that stuff. So once you give it that stuff, these they they flourish. And it's like this is this is like ducks in a barrel. This is too easy. But you but you can you can gas out, right? Because you you, you gotta you gotta re you gotta re refuel. So that's been what's been interesting, uh, seeing these these kids kind of grow and um, seeing what they give all mm-hmm. the time. But they just you know, uh, that's, that's been a really cool experience. How, how has that changed you? That sense, that sense of call it responsibility that you can't, can't walk away. And so how did it recraft maybe the way you look at life for yourself? Um, I think that, uh, not, uh, there's, I think the biggest, the biggest thing that's impacted me is the um, sort of forgiveness or uh, like if a kid gets in trouble and you send them to their room and they're crying and screaming and, you know, they, they hate everything about everything and this is the worst situation ever. And like, the, like an hour later, they're they're still kissing you and they're, they're hugging you good night and they're sad if they don't. So it's amazing. I'm like, are you, are you like manic or something? Like, do you, do you, do you not realize you just, you just wished me dead and you know, you, you wanted me, you wanted, you wanted me out of the life and now you're back and everything's cool. But it, it's like, they, they can't, they can't hold that. Like they would not survive mm-hmm. if they, if they held on to those things. And so it's like childlike, childlike, how are we being, more childlike how are we how are we letting go of these things like grudges and how are we holding on to things like affection and love so definitely those things have changed me because i i would have been real quick to hold grudges i'm i'm like hold a grudge and 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 sort of perseverate on something that some person did to me back in 1982 i mean i would have held on to that stuff Mm -hmm. but kids don't have time for that like they they're changing too much and they're they got too many. They have too many needs, too many basic needs to hold on to that stuff. Especially when something like love is unconditional. Mm-hmm. So they made the choice, and it's like they, they're like, "Well, I'm supposed to love Dad." They they just made the choice. So they love me in spite of who I am, mm-hmm. in spite of what I've done, right? Not mm-hmm. because of it. And that's that's been something that's been really impactful. So I I now I'm now in the position to say, "Can I do that?" And like bringing it back to the first questions that you asked me. I mean are you able to make those hard choices? And once you know what compassion is, are you able to do it? I mean, do you want to do it? Are you making the choice to do it? Cause it's a choice. So that's, uh, that's probably the biggest thing I've learned. How, um, have you been able to take care of you in the process of, you know, when you, it's funny, you, you know, I read the, the resume thing and you said, oh, that's a big introduction, et cetera. Sometimes these bios are kind of points of reflection of what, what people have accomplished. And you've obviously accomplished a lot and you're, you have this ever, ever insatiable appetite for it, learning. And you're also doing a lot of things from a business perspective. So how have you been able to find you in that space, take care of three kids, be a good dad? You know, what is, is that a burden or a joy or a mix of all those things? And where do you find you in there? Um, I think uh, learning how to say no to certain things has been very important. Um, learning uh, how to not, um, how to, how to finish something. I mean, four rules that, that I was taught by 
uh, a guy with a, a whole lot of money who we were just having a, uh, a, a really interesting conversation. Um, he said, look, if you can do four things, you'll always be accountable. If you can always say please and thank you, always finish what you start, always do what you say, and always be on time. Those four things will always keep you accountable. I teach my, my kids can recite those things to you. I mean, hands down, like those are like, they know it. Boom. You always do what you say. Always do what you say. So those things now I've, I've sort of when started something, I always want to finish it. Um, and if I'm trying to do what I say that, I mean, that's tough. It's tough. You want, you want to, sometimes you don't want to do that, but I, I want to finish something before I, I start something new. Uh, and I don't, I, I try not to overcommit now. Mm. Um, and really if it, um, my kids, it's funny, kids keep you honest. I mean, if we're still talking about their role in all this, where it's like, if my son comes up and he says, or my daughter comes up and she says, I want to, you know, play dress up and you have to wear a dress and you got to wear a dress. Like, you just got to do it. And you think you have to, you have to get on with it. Or if your son says, you know, can we play Lego at three o'clock play with Lego blocks? I mean, what are you going to say? You just say, no, no, I can't. I, I got other things to do. Do you really like, do you, can you actually do it? I mean, you, we started, or sorry, if he says, can we finish playing with Lego? Well, yeah, we can, we got to do it. We got to finish what we started and we got to mm. go on. And they don't know any different. They, they don't, they don't care about what you have to do. Right. Cause that's not the important thing. Right. <laughs> They're the important thing. And so it's interesting. So with that, those are the things that they sort of keep you honest. And, and so those, those rules of accountability, I, I, I try hard to stick to them because those they they're, they're very very simple and usually usually things in life are very simple. Uh, mm-hmm. We we complicate things with our <laughs> with our crazy crazy ideas. Off, off, splintering off of that, um, I'm just interested in uh, you know when you've watched Canada basketball really change over the last 24 years. You you know witnessed the Raptors win the championship uh, last season and. So, you know, what's been delightful or cool to watch uh, in your in your journey with Canada basketball, with Canadian basketball? Um, you know, just just lament on that a little bit. What 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 you've watched and what you've witnessed and what you see now? I think um, basketball has been interesting. I mean, it's always been. Uh, one of my first loves uh, from a sport perspective. And um, I, I, I don't think I took it seriously. Uh, and I'll explain what I mean by that. I didn't take it probably seriously for the first, maybe 10 years, five years, 10 years, uh, simply because it was something that was, I would, I'm a, I, let's face it. I'm a warm body and I'm standing in a spot uh, that no one else can take simply because I'm a warm body standing in the spot. Like that's like, it's like, like, let's, let's be real. Right. Like I, it's not that I have some, some incredible skill. It was just because I was there and it was, Hey, can you come back and do it again? And, and that was like the first, you know, five years of me doing this. And then, and then it really turned into, I, I put it on myself to ask better questions and like, what do we want to try and achieve? So way back, we, we uh, maybe this is around 2010, working with the the, uh, the people uh, who were in charge, uh, certainly at that time, uh, we put together what was, we called it the 2020 vision. And this was going to be an 11-year journey uh, or more um, where we could be podium ready. And what, what things do we want to put in place? And what I kind of took away from that was we got to build a system that was very organic 
And we had to build a system that was based on a, a human level. And I have some different tenets as to, to uh, how systems work, I guess, human systems. But that, I mean, looking at how humans grow as a dovetail from what we were just talking about, you would never uh, you know, say to your daughter, okay, daughter, you're not my daughter anymore. Uh, you, you know, you broke that vase and I told you not to touch it and you broke it. So you're done. Me and you were done. You're through, pack your bags. You know? I mean, you, you can't, right? Yes. And so what you would do is you would go to her and say, Hey, you know what? That vase has been in the family for 150 years, but you're going to be here for the next while. And I love you and you're my daughter and we're going to get through it. And we're, you know, right and wrong and all that stuff. So you're going to teach her or negotiate a better plan than to fire her. Right. So <laughs> that has been in the back of that's been the underpinning with with growth, uh, certainly from the sports science side. Uh, what I see with basketball uh, uh, on the operational side is sticking with these kids. How do we get the, 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 the grassroots? And that's really what it's about. What how are you going to get these young people to grow and putting stock into them, that was something that we never did before. It was always for the first maybe five, five, seven years, it was like, okay, hey, let's roll out the ball. You ready? You ready? You in? You in? Okay, we're all in. Put on this red jersey. It says Canada on the front. You're all on the Canadian team. Let's go and let's win. Now, I'm being facetious because it obviously meant more than that. But from, a, from an organizational perspective, it, it was not much more. And even you'll find players who arguably would say that's what it was. It was a collection of guys who were very good players and they put on the same Jersey, but they didn't, they didn't live and die for it. And Steve Nash was a big part of bringing that together. And so there was a lot of, there was a lot of success when Steve was with us. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wanted to take that. It, it, Steve never articulated those things, but I wanted, I, I kind of, I cued into those and I wanted to make sure that that was part of the, the sports science or at least the, the operations underpinning as well. So the people who have been with me, there have been there are people who have been with this team for 15 years, uh, and they started as interns. And I said, look, I mean, I started a scholarship, a couple scholarships at schools and at Sheridan at York. And I said, look, I mean, we want to build something, and we want you to grow, and we want you to take leadership roles. And so those people did those things. And the biggest flattery is that they, they've taken the same, made the same choices, I guess, professionally as, as, as I've made and as other people on our team have made. And so there's a very credentialed bunch of people who are working together on all levels from junior all the way from, from senior all the way down to, to the, the kids level. So, the, so the, the, the takeaway is people are, we are constantly evolving. We're constantly challenging ourselves. We're constantly uh, changing our our viewpoint, but we're 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 always loyal to each other as a family would be, uh, and that's really what kids do when they grow. So mm -hmm. we've had that commitment to we've we've instilled that commitment to the athletes. We're, we're not we're here for you. We're here with you, and the only reason we're here with you is because we're we're from the same place. We're we're, we're from the same family. You have no reason to play with us. Like we, if anything, we break athletes down. Right? We, we're asking guys to play more when mm -hmm. they could have time off. Right? They're not getting millions of dollars from us. They're, they're, they get. They're, hopefully, they're getting something more in representing their country. But we, that's tough. Right? You ask a guy who's you signed a, a six or seven or eight figure contract to come back and give more. I mean, that's 
I, I, I really, I really look, uh, look very carefully, take very, look very carefully at that. And, uh, I don't take that for granted. So I appreciate them. And a lot of these guys have been, even with me, these athletes I've known since they were like 16 and 15 and stuff like that. So they, they've come through a system. So it's all about growth. I think that there's been growth on all levels. And, uh, I've, I've tried to make sure that the growth also happens on the operational administrative side, uh, not just on the, the athletic development side. Um, but I think that that is the most successful way. It is tough, tough, tough to do tough Mm -hmm. because just like being a parent, it's tough. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. You got to make hard choices. You make choices in spite of things, in spite of what you want to do. But I, I, I think it's, I think it's been good uh, because we are, we are putting ourselves now in a position to do some things we've never done before. Hmm. What do you hope your kids say about you when somebody asks them, "What's your dad all about?" <laughs> Uh, I hope they hope they give an answer and, say, and not say that they don't know. Uh, <laughs> they they they. Uh, <clears throat> I think that I, I, I would. I think I'd like them to uh, be able to communicate uh, the words that he loved me, uh, and uh, not that I was always around or that I was a nice guy, or but that it was clear and to use those words. I mean. It's it's sometimes very, um, especially for boys, like they don't use those words. And so I, I make sure that I use those words. And the word love is a, uh, uh, it's not like a, a flippant thing. Uh, or if, if someone says, I love you, I don't go, hey, right back at you. Or mm-hmm. ditto. No, mm-hmm. actually say the word. And sometimes that's tough. Sometimes that's tough to do. Um, and so I, I, I would want them to, to always have that on the, the sort of tip of their lips to say that I love them and to be able to say those words and that it's cool to say those words and that, and that I've, I've instilled in them that they can be themselves kind of like my, my parents did. That it's okay to be who you are. And it's okay to live that and to be very grounded. And if someone's coming at you with slings and arrows and why, you know, why are you like the way you are? And that they can very calmly like my dad, calmly either just let them talk and let them burn out or be ready to give an answer for the reason that you're very very happy or that you're very that you are the way you are mm-hmm. uh, and just you know, with with you know unapologetically right, mm-hmm. to say you know most most people don't like to feel like they're bettered by somebody because of the like uh, that somebody's holding up a mirror and why is he so happy why is he so you know so so good yeah it's okay. <laughs> you mm-hmm. can, you can be that way. You don't have to be a bad boy. You don't have to be a, you know, a, you know, something that's unappealing. You can be appealing and you can be, you can be strong. You know, mm-hmm. you can be gentle and strong and all those things. So those are the things that we talk, I talk about, especially with my girls. Like I, I, I love, I kind of always don't tell my son, but I always wanted to have girls <laughs> because uh, <laughs> girls are special and you've got a girl. I mean, you're, you're, mm-hmm. you, you'll agree with this hundred percent. Like, they're emotional and they're gentle and it's really cool if you can teach them to be tough and strong. It's just so cool. Right. And, and so it's, I get a kick out of that, that they can be strong and they can be, you know, a, a, a force uh, boys. I mean, they break things and they smell and they just, you know, they, 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 they do all this stuff. 
and they just by default. And so with the boy, I, I love teaching him that he can use the word love and that he can, you know, be, he can look at things that are beautiful and just take a couple seconds and just be quiet and just walk in something like a, a, the forest, like living in a ravine and to be able to walk there and just enjoy like the sound of water running. And what does it actually sound like? And what color would you say it, it, it would look like if you were to assign it a color? All these abstract things. Like, mm-hmm. I think that stuff is important because they, 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 they can thrive on this. And so those are things that I, I've always wanted to kind of develop. And uh, I, wish, I wish I had even more of that when I was a kid. Awesome. Well, I knew this would be a great conversation with you, sir, and it has been. So uh, it's been really cool to learn more about you. And thank you for taking an hour of your day with me today. And hope we bounce into each other uh, another time sooner rather than later, so to speak. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you very much. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Payne, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>